Will you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and also for song which you put in our mouths. And Lord, I pray that as your word now is proclaimed, as it is heralded, Lord, I pray that we would receive it as the good news that it is, and Lord, that we'd be shaped by it. Lord, I pray that you would use this word to put songs in our mouths. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you've got your Bibles, I want to ask you to open them up to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Now, the anointed king of Israel, her covenant head, her representative, her Messiah, little M for now, has been the one through whom the Lord her God did many marvelous things for her. Now, the Lord's love of Israel was undeserved, but it was a fierce and jealous and lovely and steadfast love. His covenant with Israel was a covenant which had conditions, but so great was his love for her that he was the one who ultimately swore to meet those conditions and to bear the punishment for even her violations of that covenant. So giving her an anointed king, a Messiah, was the Lord himself working to fulfill both sides of the covenant. The relationship between God and Israel, sealed by an oath. We've already seen that David served as the royal kinsman redeemer. And that he, what, he, what he would accomplish would actually count as if the whole nation, the whole family, the whole people, the whole country, the whole kingdom had done it. Even those, even those who had already died. And so we watched last week as the Lord worked through David to give Israel the eyes of the Lord to restore the fear of the Lord and the desire for the presence of the Lord. And the people, now once again, the 12 tribes, they assemble together before the Lord's presence as one body to worship him. This was commanded by the Lord. It was an obligation, but it was much more than an obligation. It was for God's glory, but it was also, it was also for Israel's joy, her great joy. So brothers and sisters, everyone who trusts in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection and his coming reign, this is a true and historical glimpse of the job description of the Messiah of Israel. And it's a mere taste of the treasure and the joy which David's greater son, Jesus Christ, accomplished for his people. And so we're going to begin this sermon with the same passage that we left off with last week, a feast of rich food for all the people of Israel. And here we're going to see, hopefully you'll see this with me, that the Lord insists on and provides for the rejoicing of his people. Let's read 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to read the first seven verses. And they brought the ark of God and set it, uh, set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. 
And he distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. And then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him were Zechariah, Jael, Shemiramoth, Jehaliel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaiah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, who were to play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals. Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. So here we see that the Lord insists on and provides for the rejoicing of his people. Now, before the ark of God came to Jerusalem, God, through David, established, uh, established Jerusalem as a place of safety for Israel, a stronghold, a refuge for his people. This is before the ark came in. And the only reasonable response was to rejoice with a feast of rich food provided by the one who gave them this place of safety and surety. You see, celebration food here. Now, all cultures have those foods that are traditionally reserved for holidays or celebrations. Foods that you eat on birthdays or Christmas or New Year's. And I remember when I was Younger, it was a tradition on New Year's that we would gather together with our church, and after praising the Lord together, we would all eat olibolin, which is deep-fried donuts with raisins in them. So we would have tables with plates, and it was lined with table lined with plates with different colors and shapes of olibolin of various uh, tastiness, some better than others, and then beside each was a bowl of straight icing sugar. And that the kids of the church would double and triple and quadruple dip their snotty donuts in. This is a celebration. Now, I, I freely admit that some of your traditional food, some of the cultures represented in this church, uh, some of your normal meals are actually more tasty than the Dutch celebration meals. But we see here that, that rejoicing is expressed really well with feasting, celebration foods. And so portions of meat and dessert cakes, these raisin cakes, and I'm, I'm going to call those olibolin just for now to appropriate that cultural thing. Uh, that wasn't really common in Israel. That wasn't the thing that you'd eat after a day's work in the field. There wasn't that kind of wealth. This was for celebrations and feasts, for rejoicing as a way to feel joy, as a way to express joy. And so Israel rejoiced when through the Messiah, the Lord had established for them a stronghold. Smiles and stuffed bellies and laughing. And that was what we read a couple of chapters ago. But now it also ends this, this passage that we studied last week and this week. The same scene. Israel's joy in assembling together before the presence of her bridegroom, the Lord God, is the same kind of joy of having a stronghold secured for her. And we're meant to see that repetition. Oh, cakes of raisins, 
cakes of raisins. It's the same sense, the same rejoicing, a feasting kind of joy. David's Messiah responsibilities included ensuring that Israel rejoiced, that she sang, ensuring that she delighted in the Lord, that she gloried in him, that she experienced and expressed that joy which was hers because of the Lord's covenant promised love to her. It was not enough that Israel technically and legally belonged to the Lord. Not enough that she technically had been redeemed. Not enough that she technically had joy and love of the Lord. It was the Messiah's responsibility to ensure that she drank from that joy, which was hers, because of the covenant love of God. And so David appointed here Levites. You might recognize the name of Asaph here because his name appears about a dozen times in the book of Psalms, which was the hymn book for the Old Testament people of God. David appointed these men to ensure that the people of Israel had songs to sing, that they had fuel to worship the Lord, that they could express their joy and love and delight in words, and then their words to song, to music. The people of Israel were not responsible to think of or imagine or logically come up, of, come up with how the Lord their God felt about them. I think this is how he feels about me. I'm going to sing about that. They didn't have to put words in God's mouth of his affection for them. They were not responsible to come up with promises for God to make to them and then sing about those things. They were not responsible to come up with comforts from the Lord, which then they could comfort themselves with. Put another way, they were not responsible to come up with their own lullabies to comfort them. The Lord himself provides the promises we sing about. The comforts what we comfort that we comfort ourselves with when we sing. He puts songs on the lips of his people. The Lord himself takes the responsibility for that. And here we see that he does so through his anointed king, through the Messiah of his people. It is this responsibility that is given to him. The Lord does insist on the songs of his saints, of his redeemed people. He doesn't merely suggest that we sing. He doesn't merely say, it's acceptable. I would accept that if you did sing. This is the difference between a dad telling his daughter, yeah, I guess you can kiss me. It would be fine if you kiss me on the cheek. That'd be fine. The difference between that and a dad who teaches his one-year-old daughter to kiss him on the cheek. He creates the relationship that way. It's part of how he teaches her to know and enjoy his love for her. The Christian gospel is not a mere religion of good works. It's not a philosophy or merely a way of life. It's wicked sinners who are enemies of God being brought near and enjoying that beloved relationship with God that only God's Son, Jesus Christ, really did deserve. 
It's being brought into that everlasting and infinite joy. And that's why singing is not just acceptable, but expected and essential. Pouring out our souls before the Lord, our rescuer, the lover of our souls. We glory in him, we delight in him, we praise him. This is actively enjoying him. Much like food must be actively enjoyed by eating it. So singing to the Lord is an essential part of delighting in what Christ paid for with his blood. I want you to see how this forecasts how Jesus Christ would care for every aspect of our relationship with God as adopted children. He, our great and final and full Messiah. See, not only did he die for our sins, taking on our relationship with God on the cross as enemies, and give us his righteousness and his relationship with God as children. He has also given us new hearts to delight in that relationship. Because our old hearts would not have even loved that relationship. We wouldn't have enjoyed it. It wouldn't have been a great joy and treasure. And so he gives us new songs as well. He gives us the truths, the words, the promises, the commands, the comforts. He puts these songs on our lips. That's not to say that we only sing the exact word of God. It does mean, though, that we sing, that we sing what Scripture teaches us to sing, what the men assigned and inspired divinely by God to provide these songs, to sing what they have given, what he has given through them. We sing what they sing about. Now, when a writer, now, when a writer writes a good song from the truths of Scripture, she's not coming up with promises from God to sing about. He already gave those promises in Scripture. And I'm not coming up with how I think God must feel about me. He's already expressed those affections for the songs which we may now write and sing. I'm not coming up with declarations of what my love for him should look like. He has already expressed that in his word, and then he shapes and fuels the songs that the church now writes and sings. And we see this work of the great Messiah expressed in Colossians 3, which Jordan read for us this morning. I'm going to draw our attention to verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Lord insists on this. Just like David insisted on feasting with rich food and provided rich food, the Lord Christ insists on and provides for the word of Christ to dwell in the church richly. Same idea as this rich food. We have now the word of Christ, which is rich. The word of Christ is not just enough. It is overflowing. It is richly dwelling in us. His glory and love are worthy of this outpouring of affection from his church. 
and they need it. To get a sufficient understanding of the great joy and love purchased for them with the precious blood of Christ on the cross. And so he insists on it. Not leaving it up to the desire or even the ability of his people to come up with words. He insists on it because he knows how much we need it. And what is good news is that he cares more about our joy than we do. The joy purchased by his son's precious blood will not go undelighted in. He purchased this joy for us. He will be glorified for this, and his people will be filled with joy in the glory of their Redeemer. So we can see this is the job description of the anointed kings of God's people. Now, David did well. Many of his sons, most of his sons, failed miserably. But his greatest son fully and finally fulfilled this job description, this office to insist on and then provide rejoicing for his people. Now, what does that rejoicing look like? What words does the Lord provide for and put on the lips of his people? How is our relationship with the Lord expressed in song? Now, we're going to do something very dangerous here today. We are analyzing a song instead of singing it. It's kind of like drawing a bike or studying it rather than riding it. Now, you may have noticed that the sermon outline has seven points. We're not going to be here till tomorrow. It's basically three points, but the second point has five mini parts. And so I'd like you to turn with me back to 1 Chronicles 16. We're going to begin at verse 8, and we're going to see our second point is that we praise him because we can lean on him. We praise him because we can lean on him. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. To 11. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Each of these sections now that we're going to read in this song flow into each other, and they can't be split apart neatly. Mathematicians don't like songs for these reasons. They don't, you can't say this is about this, this, and, th and this is about this. And so because it's a song, each part flows into the other and actually borrows the sweet truths of the previous sections and even shoots truths ahead to the next section. But we can see these themes that he wants us to sing. What kind of praise does the Lord provide for his people? Who can sing these songs and and? What are they to sing for? Those who lean on him, praise him, because we can lean on him. This is what that word seek, you see that word in there a few times, seek? That's what the word seek captures. It's not the idea of Sherlock Holmes looking for clues, finding a hidden God, go around looking for him. It's not what it means. If you look at verse 11, seek the Lord's strength. And so here it captures the intention, the thought, the emotion of a boy sitting outside close to his dad, like right beside his dad. And then he hears a gunshot. And as panic shoots through his body, he instinctively reaches for his dad. He's not looking around for him. He's reaching out to him. 
It's those who rely on and lean on the Lord who can rejoice. And we rejoice because we can lean on him. And even rejoicing is a way to lean on him. There's no gathering yourself and thinking, I've got this. No, we lean on, we rest in, we trust in, we seek him and his strength and his salvation. And so for those who come to church on a Sunday with such unsteadiness that it feels like your knees are jello, it is a gift to sing together with the household of God as a way to actively lean on the Lord. In the middle of an earthquake, grabbing onto the thing that's not shaking. To praise him because their God has carried them thus far. And to praise him as a way of, to continue to lean on him, to continue to rest in him. And I want you to realize the unique gift this is to the Christian gospel, brothers and sisters. We may have forgotten this. This is unique to the Christian gospel. And it's why the Lord Jesus is called our Sabbath rest. Because that's what the Christian gospel of faith is, to appeal to nothing but the blood of Christ for our hope and salvation and acceptance by God and, and love of God. I'm not hoping that God will recognize my worth or, or work or my strength or holiness, but I'm seeking Christ and his self, as my salvation. That doesn't mean I'm looking around for him. It means I lean on him. I reach to him. When I wonder where my hope is, I grab him. I lean on him. I seek him. I lean on what he has done in his life, in his death, his resurrection, his righteous fulfillment of the law in my place as the great Messiah, as his current, on his current reign, that he's currently in charge of all things, and in his promises, which have already been paid for with his blood, to judge the living and the dead. So even our prayers as Christians, whose faith it is in Christ, even those are provided and worked and carried by Christ himself. This ability to lean on him, even that is a gift that we would not have experienced. Romans 8 tells us that even getting the words out, Father, help, even those are provided by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. The desire to pray, that's also from him. The words to pray, from him as well. Even when we're too weak or crushed or confused to even get words out, the Spirit of Christ intercedes for us. So church, praise him. Sing to him with your hearts because he holds your hearts, your souls, and you can lean on him. That brings us to our third point. We praise him because we remember what he has done for his people. And again, this is going to borrow from what we just heard about. Why can we, how do we know that we can lean on him? What does it mean to know that we can lean on him? We praise him because we remember what he has done for his people. It's digging into Christ, into why Christ's people can lean on him. For the ways which he has proven lean-worthy. He has proven search-worthy. He has proven trustworthy. Oh, church, we praise him for what he has done. Let's continue to read in 
Chapter 16, let's, ver- let's begin at verse 12, and we're going to read to 22. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as, a, as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress you. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. It is good and pleasing to the Lord. And it's good for your soul to praise him for the things that he has done specifically for you. For the food that you ate this morning. For the furnace kicking in when it needed to last night. For the job that you just received. Or the job that you have held for the last 30 years. For giving you a lovely, godly wife for sparing your brother's life. This is good and pleasing to the Lord. And he's worthy of those praises, but the focus of the songs which the Lord puts on his people's lips, those songs which he calls his people to sing together, are those things which he has done for his people as a whole. And those things which he did according to his promise, according to his covenant, And so we rejoice along with you that the Lord spared your brother's life or that your child was born healthy. These are good gifts from his loving and perfect and sovereign hand, but they were not promised to you. And not all of God's people can sing those songs with those words. So the full force of our song comes from the things which God has done according to his promise. Those things which he has done in accordance to his covenant. The things that he did that he swore to do. Over and over again, the people of Israel sang the songs of God, crushing the Pharaoh when God redeemed them from Egypt. They sang of God's covenant care for them in the wilderness, giving them manna from heaven and water from a rock for crushing enemies which came against them in the wilderness. And here the people of Israel, under David's direction, they sing of his, the protection of God's covenant people even before they were a people. When it was just Abraham and Sarah. These were God's jealous and protective loving threats to the kings of the nations who would have been tempted to attack them. And this very much looks like a reference to the Lord's words to Pharaoh when he took Abraham's wife Sarah into his harem. Now, brothers and sisters, the the prophets and the angels were jealous of us because not only can we praise God for his care of our father Abraham, for God's redemption of his bride from Egypt, 
for returning his covenant people from exile in Babylon, but we can also rejoice and praise the Lord for taking on human flesh and offering his life as a sacrifice to once and for all pay for our sins. To crush sin in our place, rendering it an enemy that is powerless to take our joy and which now ushers us into the presence and joy of our covenant God. We can praise him with these words. These words were provided by the great Messiah. And it's good to remember that the Lord saved you from that car accident. But your soul is to be most satisfied for the way that he has kept his covenant promises to his people, which include you now by faith. Especially for the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your debt is paid, your future secured. You've been declared righteous and you've been washed clean. Your judgment and punishment is in the past because it fell on Jesus Christ. And so we praise him because we remember what he has done for us as his people. Brings us to our fourth point. We praise him because he is to be feared. Let's continue reading from verse 23 to verse 30. Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. We praise him because he is to be feared. We drank from this well last week, church. The fear of the Lord is good and sweet and it gives life. To recognize how great and powerful and holy and righteous he is. To recognize how worthy of fear he is. Because his great and terrible power is not an unknown, predictable power. It is the power of a God who loved you when you were an enemy and who died for your sin. This is the terrifying power which crushed Pharaoh. Why? To judge him for his crimes against the Lord's precious bride, his people. This is the fearful power which faced and humiliated Satan and death on the cross for the good of his dearly beloved covenant bride. This terrifying power causes the earth to tremble and his people to erupt in joy because he has sworn to use this unstoppable power to defend and guard and protect and rescue and gather and keep and yes, even discipline his dearly beloved blood-bought church, his power and reign are to arouse 
fear and reverent honor of him in his people. It is a joyful fear which erupts in song. That brings us to our fifth point. We praise him for the joy of his steadfast love. We rejoice because this terribly powerful God is a holy God who made the heavens and earth, but he doesn't just promise to care for us. Like it's a bare contract. Well, I promise to do it. I'm going to have to do it. Yes, my, my care for my covenant people, uh, it, it, it sets a precedent before. So I did it before, and so now I kind of have to do it now. I've got to honor that precedent. I've got to honor that promise, but I don't enjoy it. See, that's not the way God thinks about this, and that's not what our songs are about. No, we rejoice that his care and provision for us is out of his covenant steadfast love. Now let's read, continue reading, verses 31 to 34. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, love is something that we kind of get. We have affection for things and people, but steadfast love is rare. Love which endures all things. And that's the kind of love with the, which the Lord has shown to his chosen people. And the longer that relationship went on, the more steadfast that love proved to be. It endures forever. There's no really, no great joy in rejoicing what the Lord has, has done in love for you today if you're facing another struggle tomorrow and he may or may not love you tomorrow. That would mute any songs that you sing today. But for those united to Christ by faith, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Because he has tied his own character, he has tied his own existence to his love for the church. For those whose faith is in Christ, the great Messiah, his love ending for the church would be as possible as God ceasing to exist. Because it's not dependent on the strength of the church or her holiness. It's not dependent on her ability to worship and praise him. This love is dependent on the strength of his oath. And he swore the oath by his own name. You remember the writer of Hebrews reminds us of this. Which means he swore it by his own existence. And then he sealed it with his blood. Because the covenant marriage was violated with the sin of his people. Yet he himself bore the judgment for our covenant failures because his steadfast love endured not just a little bit, not just a lot, before ever. He could no more forget the church. He could no more forget you, dear Christian, then he could forget to be God. And that he loves us moves us to song. And we sing to praise him for his love and to be comforted and satisfied in his steadfast love. A work assigned 
to the Messiah, make sure they sing of my love. Brings us to our sixth point. We praise him by calling in him for salvation. Let's finish off this song. Let's look at the last two verses. Say also, verse 35, say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. What I want you to see here is that there's no difference between praising God and calling out to him for salvation. Calling out to him for salvation is a way to praise him. It is a way to glorify him, to know your sins, to be freshly made aware of them. And then instead of determining your own way back to him, you call on the forgiveness and salvation of the Lord. That is to praise him. To see the enemies of your soul assemble against your soul, the world and your own flesh and the devil. And instead of resolving in your own strength to beat them, instead of conceding to them because they're unstoppable, I might as well just give in. Instead of those things, to, to join your voices with the Lord's people, to lean on, to call on, and to seek him for salvation, to ask him to save you. That is praise itself. And I say this because the temptation can be to think of praising God as putting in the bank. And then calling on him, asking him for help, is kind of like withdrawing from that bank. But that is not the way the covenant God of Israel works. It's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not like the gods of the nations. He is not like the idols. He considers our cries for salvation and forgiveness as precious and glorious praise. He thinks that is itself sweet. We praise God for salvation done in the past and for turning again to him and trusting in the work of Christ and then saying, again, Father, again, I still need you. You are still the one I seek and lean on and forever will. We praise him by calling on him for salvation. That brings us here to the conclusion, our, se our seventh point, and that is the anointed king is a blessing to the household of God. Now we're going to jump back to the first, or the second verse, I guess, of this chapter. We began this passage with David blessing the whole house of Israel in the name of the Lord. We see this in verse 2, and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And now we finish with the same kind of words. I want you to see this with me as we finish off from verse 37 to 43. So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark each as each day required. And also Obed-Edom and his 68 brothers, while Obed-Edom, the son of Jeduthun and Hosa, were to be gatekeepers. And he left Zadok the priest and his brothers the, pri the, the priests before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offering regularly morning and evening. 
to do all that is written in the law of the Lord that he commanded Israel. With them were Heman and Jeduthun and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Heman and Jeduthun had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jeduthun were appointed to the gate. Then all the people departed each to his house, and David went home to bless his household. See how this passage is bracketed with both of those phrases. David blesses the house of Israel. He blesses his own house. Now that's going to be gorgeously and powerfully clear in the next chapter. When the words house are going to be repeated so much that your head, your head is going to be spinning. House is going to mean so much and so many things in the next chapter that it'll make the gospel so incredibly clear. The house of David, though, is going to be the focus of all the household of God's blessings. From David's house will come forth blessings for the whole household of God. Now remember, this history, 1 Chronicles, is being first written to a group of Israelite exiles returned to the land of Israel after 70 years of exile, of captivity. Remember who is first receiving this book? They have been reduced to a remnant, to a stump of a people, cut down to the roots. And they are looking for the blessings of God to finally sprout. And Ezra, we think it might be Ezra, but the chronicle is telling them where to look. Look to the house of David. The blessings of the house of David and the blessings of the household of God are going to be one and the same thing. For God to bless the house of David would be for him to bless his whole household. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ is called the branch which sprouts from the stump, the root of David's house. Because it focuses Israel's hope. It focuses our hope as well. Israel's hope was not in what each household should, uh, should be able to accomplish. Not what we individually can accomplish or achieve in our own houses, the house and legacy that I can work, and neither it is what we can all collectively achieve together in all of our households, put them all together. No, it's what the Lord would accomplish through the house of David, through the legacy, through the throne of David. It's what the branch from the house of David would achieve and it would be blessings for the whole house of God. As our covenant head, his blessings are ours because we are his body. And so church, we sing because our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in what God could do through us even, but in what, Christ, what God did for us in Christ, the great son of David. Here Israel is to realize that what the Lord has done for them in David has given them great reason to rejoice and sing. But it is merely a foretaste of the songs that are on the lips 
of the people of his great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has given us such joy in Christ, and he insists that we delight in that joy purchased by the blood of Christ. Take it, eat it, drink from it, taste and see. Enjoy this joy, he says. Sing the songs which cost me my life for you to sing. Do not merely sit at the table of the household of God and say, well, I have legally a right to be here. Do not merely sit at the table looking at the rich food and counting it and recording it. Yes, do that. But take it into your mouths and savor it. The Lord has put a son of David on the throne, brothers and sisters. So we have beautiful songs to sing. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have, first of all, redeemed us. You've justified us. That you have actually redeemed us legally and truly. And you have sworn covenant promises to us, Lord. We are yours. It's not just a matter of how we feel. It's not even simply just a matter of how you feel about us. But it's permanently true. And we also rejoice because it's not merely a legal relationship with you. It's not less than that, but it is also a relationship of joy that Christ purchased for us. And we praise you, Lord, that we don't have to come up with our own ideas to sing about you, our own promises for you to sing, our own commitments to sing to you, our own comforts to be comforted with, Lord, that you have assigned those to the writers of Scripture. And you've assigned the Messiah to secure those things make sure that those are not simply just ideas that we sing about, but solid realities to delight in. And we pray, Lord, and we're not embarrassed to pray this or ashamed, that you would restore that, the rejoicing of your people as a group together, as a congregation to be filled with the sounds of the voices of the praises of your people, that we might delight in you in that way again. Lord, I pray that the work of your spirit would make those songs not just from our mouths, but also from our souls. That our hearts would be tuned to sing your grace. We thank you that you are the God of our salvation and also the God of our song. We pray these things in Jesus' name.